Hello and happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. For today's message, we will be in 1 Peter chapter 1. By way of context, when a great fire destroyed two-thirds of Rome in 64 BC, the Romans believed that Emperor Nero had something to do with it. His passion and lust for building was well known among the people, and they reckoned that he had deliberately set the fire so that he could rebuild the city. Outrage and social unrest ensued. To avoid any further trouble, Nero blamed Christians for the devastating blaze. Christians were already hated because of their association with Jews and because they were seen as hostile to Roman culture. So it made perfect sense to point the blame at them. As a result, vicious persecution arose and spread throughout the Roman Empire, especially in the regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, Peter wrote this amazing epistle to encourage these persecuted Christians as they suffered for the name of Jesus. He begins by addressing them as elect exiles of the dispersion. We see that in verse 1. In verse 2, he describes the source of their election, God the Father. He describes the sphere of their election, sanctification of the Holy Spirit. He describes the effect of their election, obedience to Jesus Christ. And he describes the security of their election, being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And at the end of verse 2, he described the advantages of their election, which is what? Grace and peace were being multiplied to them. Now, immediately following his introduction, Peter penned a doxology or a hymn in which he describes the inheritance all believers have. The doxology is meant to encourage us to look beyond our circumstances and rejoice in the God who has secured a glorious future for us. This is what we'll be looking at today. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and our focus will be on verses 3 through 7. I have entitled this message, A Living Hope. Let's read the text Pray for God's help, and then we'll get to work. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we have this technology that we can use to still uh, preach the word and record it and get it out there to our people as we still sit at home during the coronavirus epidemic. Father, we pray that you help us now to understand your word. Help us to see the truth, to hear the truth, 
to believe the truth and to live the truth. Father, I pray that you encourage your flock this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and begin at verse 3a. Verse 3a. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop right there. What we see here is that Peter begins his doxology, his hymn, with blessed praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's doing is he's, he's teaching these battered believers to bless and praise God in the midst of their suffering. He's teaching them to be like Job who said, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job chapter 1 verse 21. Now I want you to notice how Peter calls God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself often called God his Father, especially in the Gospel of John. You know, it wasn't that long ago where we studied the Gospel of John and we saw Jesus call himself the Son of God or refer to God as his Father over and over and over. We saw that in chapter 5, verse 19, chapter 6, verse 44, chapter 8, verse 49, chapter 10, verse 15, and verse 30, chapter 14, verse 28, and verse 31, chapter 15, verse 10, chapter 16, verse 28. Over and over and over, Jesus claims God the Father as His Father. And by calling God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, what Jesus uh, what Peter is doing here is he is declaring the deity of Christ. And every time Jesus did that, he was doing the exact same thing. Every time you see in John or anywhere else in the New Testament where Jesus calls God his Father, he is basically making himself equal to God. He is declaring his deity. And that is precisely what Peter does here. Now, I want you to also to notice Peter's use of Christ's full redemptive name. What? what does he say? He says, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He uses his full redemptive name, Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator calls this a concentrated confession. MacArthur wrote something good here. He says, all that the Bible reveals about the Savior appears in that title. Lord identifies him as sovereign ruler. Jesus as incarnate Son, and Christ as anointed Messiah King. And lastly, notice the pronoun our. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ belongs to every believer, and every believer belongs to Him. What a grand and glorious truth. In fact, I don't think there's a, a greater truth besides the fact that we've been saved by grace through faith, knowing that we actually belong to Jesus Christ, that we belong to God. That is a phenomenal truth. And I'll tell you what, if this doesn't inspire blessed praise from us, knowing this, nothing will. Now, in the rest of the section, Peter describes five things that God has given believers. Let's look at each one. Number one, God has given believers a new birth. We see this in verse 3b, and Peter puts it like this, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. 
Now, the new birth, or being born again, has to do with being supernaturally regenerated and, and made spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Jesus taught Nicodemus in John 3, especially in verse 5. All believers were once in a wretched, helpless state. Uh, we were like everyone else in the world, slaves to sin, separated from God, under condemnation, and headed toward divine judgment and eternal punishment in hell. But God caused us to experience a new birth. Now, He did this for us, not because of something that we did, but because of His great mercy. God's mercy is therefore the basis for or of the new birth. That is what Peter is teaching here. Now, Paul teaches the same thing in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and Moses actually taught this in Exodus 33, verse 19. Now, Peter points to the new birth because it is the basis of our inheritance. To receive an inheritance from God, one must be born again because God does not give an inheritance to spiritually dead sinners who are separated from Him. He gives an inheritance to His children, and His children have been born again or born from above or born of God, as the Scripture puts it in many different ways. And how were His children born again? According to His great mercy. There is a, a progression in the text. It's like a, a mini ordo salutis or order, order of salvation. We begin at God's mercy, we move to the new birth, and then we arrive at our inheritance. So we have mercy, new birth, inheritance. That is the progression. Now, if you've been wondering how this is an Easter sermon thus far, here it comes. Let's move to the second thing God has given believers. Number two, God has given believers a living hope. We see this in verse 3c. Peter says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The basis for the living hope God gives us, gives to believers, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is because Jesus Christ rose and because Jesus Christ lives, we can have this living hope. That is what has established this living hope. He rose and he lives. In fact, he himself is our living hope. Because what? Because he lives and reigns over all things as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords. Now, this living hope that Peter is talking about here, it has three dimensions to it. A, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, believers will experience life after death in His glorious presence. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8? He said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When a believer enters the physical presence of Christ at death, they receive the place He prepared for them. John chapter 14, verse 2. They experience freedom from sin and associated suffering. Romans chapter 7, verses 24 through 25. They experience unmitigated or undisturbed joy and divine pleasures. 
Psalm 16, verse 11. And they experience eternal rest. Rest from all their labor. Revelation 14, verse 13. This is the living hope believers have. Life after death with Christ in all of these wonderful heavenly blessings that come to the believer. That's the first thing. B, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, believers will experience resurrection and glorification. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of many brethren. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Or I would say he is the first and only person in history to be resurrected into a glorified body. He's not the only one who will experience this, but this far or thus far, he is the only one to ever experience this. Others who were raised from the dead were merely resuscitated, and then they died again later, like with Lazarus, John eleven forty two, Jairus' daughter, Mark five forty two, and Eutychus, Acts twenty verses nine through twelve, and so on. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is therefore the prototype for believers. His resurrection is our resurrection. He was raised and received a glorified body. We shall be raised and receive a glorified body. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42 and verse 52. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17. And 1 John 3, 2. All of these passages talk about that. And, and this resurrection that we will have because Jesus had one and this glorification, this too is the living hope believers have. And then C, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, believers will experience the literal physical kingdom of God on earth. We call this the consummation of the kingdom of God. It includes the future, physical, visible, personal, and glorious return of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the glorification of those alive in Christ, the judgment of the just and the unjust, and the fulfillment of Christ's kingdom in the new heavens and new earth. In the consummation, Satan, with his hosts and and all those outside Christ, is finally separated from the benevolent presence of God, enduring eternal punishment, Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15. But the righteous in glorified bodies will live and reign with him forever, serving him and giving him unending praise and glory. Then the eager expectation of creation will be fulfilled, and the whole earth shall proclaim the glory of God who makes all things new. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. This too is the living hope believers have. Our living hope also has to do with this consummation and, and God redeeming all of creation and Christ establishing his rule and reign. So our living hope is multidimensional, multifaceted, and it has to do with those things. That's what Peter is presenting. Now, we can actually summarize this living hope as as follows. It is hope of life after death in Jesus' glorious presence. It is hope of resurrection and glorification as uh, when, Jesus is retur- uh, when Jesus returns, and it is hope of the consummation of the kingdom of God. 
And the basis for this multidimensional living hope is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right? Happy Easter. Now I have a question for you. Have you been born again according to God's great mercy? Are you a, a true believer who believes in Jesus Christ, who has a new life, who obeys Him, who follows Him, who loves Him, who loves the church, who turns from sin? Is this you? Am I describing you? Well, if it is, then this living hope is yours. Again, happy Easter. Now, if you haven't been born again, you're not a true believer, and you'll have only fleeting hopes, right? Fleeting hopes, dying hopes, hopes that are based on the things of this world, which is perishing. The coronavirus reminds us of this, doesn't it? It sure does. Life is uncertain. Life is short. The brevity of life is a reality, right? James chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. People and riches come and go. And if our hope is in them, it will die when they die. And this happens every day. So what must you do? I'd say you must humble yourself. Plead with God for mercy. He has great mercy He can give to you. Plead with God for His great mercy. Ask Him to give you the new birth. Ask Him to forgive your sins. Ask Him to save you from judgment, which, which is totally due to you. you. You deserve the wrath of God. Ask Him to save you from this judgment, to save you from His wrath. Ask Him to make you a true believer who actually follows and obeys Jesus Christ. And ask Him to give you this living hope that all Christians have. I like what J.C. Ryle wrote. He said, the, the ear of the Lord Jesus is ever open to the cry of all who want mercy and grace. Now let's go ahead and move to the third thing God has given believers. Number three, God has given believers an inheritance. We see this in verse four. Peter said, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What a wonderful verse. Now, inheritance represents wealth that is passed down, or a legacy one receives as a member of a family. The concept had roots in the Old Testament, which Jewish Christians in Peter's audience would have easily identified with. The Old Testament repeatedly affirms that under the Old Covenant, the people of God, the nation of Israel, received an inheritance. We see this in Numbers chapter 26, verses 53 to 56. We see it in Joshua chapter 11, verse 23, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 36, and of course we see it in Psalm 105, verse 11. Peter is telling his readers that just as Israel received an earthly inheritance, the land of Canaan, the church receives a spiritual inheritance in heaven. The spiritual inheritance believers have, um, it's completely unlike any earthly inheritance. It's, it's nothing like these earthly inheritance uh, inheritances that people leave for their children or grandchildren or to someone else in their family or to someone they love. 
It's completely different in a number of ways, and, and Peter identifies really the differences here. He, he calls it imperishable. That's the first thing that he says. And this refers in the Greek to, to what is not corruptible, to what is not liable to death or not subject to destruction. Unlike the Israelites' earthly inheritance that came and went because of their sins, believers' spiritual inheritance will never be subject to destruction. Never, ever. It is imperishable. It cannot perish. Another thing he identifies here about the spiritual inheritance in heaven is it is undefiled. I like that word, undefiled. This, in the Greek, describes things that are unstained or unpolluted. You know, everything in fallen creation um, is stained and polluted by sin, right? Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, 1 John 5, 19. Scripture makes this clear. All earthly inheritance is therefore defiled, but not the undefiled inheritance believers have in Jesus Christ. It is flawless. It is perfect. It is undefiled, untainted, totally perfect. And Peter also identifies it as unfading, unfading. The word, picture, the word picture here is of a flower that did not wither or die. In this context, it means that the believer's inheritance will never, ever lose its splendor and never lose its magnificence. And the last thing that Peter puts here is that he, he tells us that it is kept in heaven. Well, heaven is the abode of God, and it is a perfect place. There are no consuming moths in heaven. There is no devouring rust in heaven. There are no pillaging thieves in heaven, right? Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. There is nothing and no one in heaven that can destroy or steal the believer's inheritance. The Greek root word for kept is uh, tero, which means to guard, to guard. The believer's inheritance is being guarded, literally guarded by the triune God and vast multitudes of angels in heaven, which is what? Heaven is God's Fort Knox, an impenetrable place of perfection that, that nothing, no evil, no rust, no corrupting thing has access to this inheritance that Peter is talking about. It is perfect. It's perfected and kept in a perfect place for us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul tells us that the inner presence of the Holy Spirit, you know how the, the Holy Spirit indwells, indwells believers, the inner presence of the Holy Spirit is the deposit and the seal that guarantees that believers shall receive the promised inheritance from God. I love that. The fact that we have the Spirit is the deposit, is the seal. If we have the Spirit, we know we're getting the inheritance. That's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 1.14. Now let's move to the uh, fourth thing God has given believers. Number four, God has given believers eternal security. We see this in verse five. Peter puts it like this, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, believers can never, ever lose their salvation or inheritance 
Why? Because they are guarded by God's sovereign power, His omnipotence, all power. Jesus said this of His sheep, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He said this in John chapter 10, verses 28 to 29. Now, the believer's ongoing continued faith is evidence of God's protecting and preserving power in their life. The fact that we keep believing and trust, trusting in Jesus Christ proves the presence and power of God in our lives. The fact that we keep believing shows that God is sustaining and preserving and protecting our faith. What a, a wonderful, wonderful truth. The fact that, that we keep believing and trusting in Christ proves the presence of God's power. And we must understand that we are not the authors and perfectors of our faith. Christ is. It talks about that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. If we, or if I should say, if He, if God were to withhold His faith-protecting and preserving power from us for, for even one nanosecond, we would immediately stop believing and return to the world like Paul's former associate Demas did. 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. Our faith, our, our salvation, our inheritance, they are sure because God is all-powerful and unchanging. They are sure because He protects those things for us. The security for the believer and his or her inheritance both look beyond this life and human history for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is another component to it that Peter teaches here. The phrase revealed in the last time refers to the consummation at the return of Jesus Christ. That is when believers will receive the, the fullness of their salvation, right? Glorious resurrected bodies that are fashioned for eternal bliss and eternal worship in the kingdom of God. Now let's move to the fifth and final thing God has given believers. Number five, God has given believers cause for rejoicing. We see this in verses six and seven. Peter puts it like this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter basically tells his audience that believers can rejoice in the midst of various trials because God uses trials to do what? To test the genuineness of their faith and to refine their faith. Now, in my opinion, Peter's words here sound a lot like James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Now, when you place gold in a fiery furnace... It melts away, it perishes, right? I didn't know what the melting temperature is for gold, but it, it, it's not real strong, and it melts reasonably quickly. 
But when faith is put through fiery trials, it becomes more and more precious as the believer realizes what he or she has in Jesus Christ. What are we talking about here? We're talking about eternal life. We're talking about all the promises of God. We're talking about spiritual blessings. We're talking about an inheritance. We're talking about a living hope. We're talking about all of the things that Peter lists here, and so on and so on and so on. It's when we go through trials that we begin to press into Christ through faith. We begin to appreciate the faith that He has given us as a gift even more as we realize all the wonderful things that He has done for us. I think without trials, we're not even getting a taste of that. We have to go through these difficult things. We have to experience, you know, being on house lockdown through the coronavirus and these things to experience the preciousness of faith. Now, the phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, refers once again to the consummation. And Peter seems to be, in this text, obsessed with, with the last day or the consummation when Jesus comes back. He seems to be obsessed with that wonderful reality. And, and all believers really should in such a way. We ought to live our lives in light of that and be ready for the consummation and return of Jesus Christ. But that, that phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it deals with consummation again. When Jesus returns in glory with, with clouds of angelic soldiers and with, with saints, Revelation chapter 19, verse 14, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, what's going to happen? Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Now, there will be one group on earth that is not mourning, that is not weeping, that is not wailing. Can you guess which group it is? It is believers. They will not mourn at the sight of Christ's return because they have no reason to be sad or afraid. Instead, they will praise Christ, they will glory in Christ, and they will honor Christ. That's what Peter says will happen. Why? Because the consummation is what every believer and creation itself has been eagerly waiting for. When the King of Kings arrives, He will make all things new. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. Now let's go ahead and begin to wrap it up. Closing. I think we would, we would all admit that we are living in strange times. Amen? This is, um, I've had some strange times in my life, but this, this, this has set a precedent. I don't ever recall in my 50 years on this earth of being kind of locked down and, and on a, a kind of social house arrest, you know, the threat of some virus out there. Um, and we've had all sorts of viruses, uh, you know, H1N1, the swine flu, the the... The Spanish flu, I think 1918. There's been viruses and things that have been out there. They have always been out there since the fall. Um, there's always been things that happen like this. And, but I've never experienced anything like this. Th these are just strange times. I, I am right now, really for the first time ever in my life, preaching in front of a camera with no people in the room. Yeah, I'm down at the building, but there's nobody here. And it's just weird. These are strange times. And I think that because of the strangeness and all that is associated with it, 
It'd be easy for us to give in to worry, to give in to anxiety, to give in to fear. You know, I recently read a a very sad and tragic story about a couple in Arizona. Uh, They were so terrified by the coronavirus, they, they drank fish tank cleaner because there was a chemical in it that they thought would somehow protect them from the virus. You know, it was um, associated somehow with that malaria drug they've been using. I don't know how to pronounce it. But in any case, somehow the wife finds uh, or is reading the back label on the bottle of fish tank cleaner and sees a similar chemical and decides to give it to her husband and she drinks it herself. And they didn't even have the coronavirus. They're in Arizona. They didn't even have the coronavirus. And they did this out of absolute fear. And, and so tragically and sadly, one of them died. Uh, the husband died. And the wife almost died. She barely survived. You know, our entire country is going through a trial because of the coronavirus. And I doubt very seriously that, that, that people will discern any sort of spiritual implication or that they'll actually aim to get right with Jesus through it. We just have, as, as you know, unregenerate sinners have this miraculous ability to, to miss the point in all things and to never connect anything to their mortality or to Jesus Christ, the eternal life He offers. I don't, I don't think that this country is going to have a spiritual revival or anything through this. There was a bit of that after 9-11, but it, it went away almost immediately. We sinners just don't learn our lessons. But in any case, the whole country is going through a trial, especially New York State and New York City. In New York City, there are about 150 people dying per day from the coronavirus. I watched another video the other day where they were digging mass graves on some island out there in New York. Um, I don't know, it wasn't, I don't know what island it was, but in any case, they had this backhoe out there and they dug this long trench and they were stacking or putting caskets in it. It's just a, a terrifying apocalyptic kind of genocidal site. But the whole country is going through a a trial right now. And and it's affecting everyone. It's affecting unbelievers. It's it's affecting believers. I've said this and said it uh, to a few friends a few times, but, you know, I own a DJ business. Most of you know that. And I had DJ jobs for the end of March and, and through April and May and into June, and, and they've basically all canceled and moved to other dates. And some of those dates that they wanted to move to, I couldn't even take on because I was already working on those dates. It's had a financial impact on me. This, this is a trial that is impacting everyone, believers, unbelievers alike. No doubt, the entire country is going through this. And, and the great question we have before us is, how should believers respond to this trial, right? How should we respond to this? Are we supposed to line up at Costco and buy, you know, 42 containers of toilet paper? Are we supposed to be panic-stricken? Are we supposed to be out of our minds and, and anxious? Are we supposed to start reading labels so we can find some chemical that we think is going to save us? How are believers to respond to this trial? And, and sadly... I've seen and read in some reports where believers aren't handling it well at all. Worse than some unbelievers. But how should believers respond to this trial? I'll tell you how they should. They should respond to this trial like they respond to every trial. 
we are supposed to have the exact same response to every trial, no matter how difficult those trials may be. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in others. Our hope is not in money and possessions. And our hope certainly isn't in these frail bodies of ours. Our hope is in the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the one who lives forever and ever and ever, the eternal triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He has given us a new birth. He has given us a living hope, a hope that never dies. He has given us an imperishable, unfading perfect inheritance. He has given us eternal security. We can never lose our salvation. And He has given us cause for rejoicing. And I would say much rejoicing. As we huddle together with our families in the safety of our own homes on Easter Sunday, may we put our hope, may we re-put reinstall our hope in the God who has given us so much. And may we rejoice in God. May we rejoice. That is how we should respond to this trial, the coronavirus trial, and how we should respond to every trial. We have the same response. Our hope is in God in Christ. That's how we are to respond. I'll end with Psalm 33 verses 20 through 22. This is just a wonderful way to end this message. It says, we put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in you alone. Amen.